0: Welcome to Volume 108 of Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet. I don't know how many of you are fans of the short-lived television series Firefly, but if you are, you'll be excited to know that we have Alan Tudyk on the show to discuss his theater career and his current role in uh, the roundabout's revival of Prelude to a Kiss. And yes, he does talk about Firefly a little bit. Uh, We also have Anne of Green Gables. We have two of the actors and the composer here with us to be interviewed, and they're also doing an exclusive performance in studio of two of the songs from the show. We'll also be talking with the director and actors of the new Eital Fugard play, Exits and Entrances, and we also have the author and director of Rearview Mirror in here. So a lot of great stuff, and uh, Marty Cooper's going to talk about his recently uh, attended experience of the musicals of 1938 on Broadway by Year. Yep. So let's just get jumping right into it.
1: Up close.
0: I'm sitting here in the studio with Alan Tudyk, who has done film, theater, about everything you name it. I imagine there's some clowning around in there, too. And uh, he's currently starring in Prelude to a Kiss at the Roundabout Theater. How are you doing? Cheers. Very well. Very well. Starting off with Prelude to a Kiss, uh, this seems like one of the... you've, You've always done a lot of very quirky characters, probably, to say the... The least. Yes. And you were definitely in leading man, straight man territory with this play.
2: Was Was that part of the appeal or is that part of the... Uh... Definitely. I, I lived here for a long time. I don't, I don't live here so much anymore. I live in L.A. a lot. I was here before when I lived here and was doing theater much more. It was my main thing that I did and... and I did some lead characters that were, but they were always of the quirky vein, I suppose. There was um, uh, Epic Proportions, which was uh, at the Helen Hayes for a short time, with uh, Jerry Zaks directed it. And it was the... And Kristen Chenoweth Kristen was in it. Kristen Chenoweth was in it as well, yes. And, and it, was a, it was a leading role, but it was a very physical comedy leading role. And then also, um, uh, Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, which we started at the New York Theatre Workshop, and then it went to uh, Minetta Lane. But I was, we took that, we was at Williamstown first, and there were readings and workshops and all kinds of things before that. But, and it was the story of Adam and Steve, it was a Paul Rudnick play, and I played Adam. And that was the the lead of the play. But again, well, no, that was, that was pretty, I mean, it was, it was crazy, because it was Adam and Steve. <laughs> and we started out in the Garden of Eden, and like, went through time together. There was Stonehenge, we had the pyramids. I mean, we went all over the place in Act One, and then ended up with Virgin Birth, and then Act 2 was a modern day uh set in New York at Christmas time. And now you know you go you play roles in films the, the roles I play in films are like you said I I definitely sort of drift towards the uh quirky supporting roles. A and pirate in dodgeball was uh, I think a good example. yeah, that's a really good example. <laughs> we need a guy who thinks he's a pirate who plays dodgeball. Get me Alan Tudyk on the phone. Those those are the jobs I do. And I wanted to uh, when I read the script, it's a wonderful script, Prelude to a Kiss, uh, Craig Lucas. It's it's brilliant. I, I had only kind of peripherally seen the movie and wasn't a fan and kind of thought of it as Freaky Friday, but it's an old man and a young girl and just kind of thought of it as this light comedy. And then when I read it, I, I realized it was much more than that. It's it's really a, a beautiful story about love and about... Life. and For uh, our listeners
0: who maybe don't know the play, like you were just mm-hmm. saying, it's, uh, you fall in love with uh, the beautiful Annie Parise mm-hmm. in the show, and all of a sudden, at your wedding, a kiss happens with John Mahoney, and they switch souls in yes. the bodies. So.
2: And then her soul goes away. And so the thing that I fell in love with, what I married Rita for, is gone. And then it's about trying to figure out what happened, which is it's so outrageous. You know, magic happens, soul switch. There is actually how you would kind of in that situation of what what mm-hmm. this does not happen. It becomes very desperate and, and scary, and um, uh, it deals with life and death. It's it's a, it's a there's a, it goes with a lot of different places. In a lot of ways, it's a drama. It just happens to
0: be funny because of the situation. Yes, yes. They, but they treat it seriously.
2: Definitely. I mean, it's somewhat of you know. Think of if your wife or girlfriend or your significant other, or whatever, was kidnapped, basically stolen from you, and you want her back. She's gone. She's been taken. That, I mean, that that drama is is that's that's a drama. Also, like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was on while we were in rehearsals. I was like, this is like the play where the person's coming home, going, "You've <laughs> changed," and it's very scary and dramatic. There is humor to it, but I was really drawn in by the uh, by the drama and also getting to play a lead again. Definitely, if you don't, if you. I, I was fortunate enough to get to play leads earlier. Sort of just took it for granted. Oh yeah this is what I do. <laughs> I just do this. <laughs> and then doing movies and playing a lot of supporting roles I played one lead in a movie but nobody really saw me in it it was uh, in iRobot. I played Sonny the robot and did that for six months and then they Little digitally wife. drew over me and so everything I did it was my acting kind of <laughs> because they put whatever my face did on the face of a of this robot character
0: you know i saw the credit on, on your bio of you know i robot and i'm thinking where where <laughs> <laughs> i missed that where? quirky lab <laughs> assistant
2: <to me? laughs> yeah no it, it was i i got to play that role but if people don't know it was me unless you really are you know have you have to figure it out and and uh it was done with that whole well, andy service. our engineer's is a fan she's out there shaking her head yeah down, and of course you, you know oh, got that, yeah. <laughs> But it was yeah. So, but I wanted to come back. I wanted to do that. I wanted to try to take, uh, have a little bit more to chew on. And I got just that. And also plays. I always feel that plays are an opportunity to learn to act. They're they're acting classes. We get to do it eight shows a week. And the show on Tuesday. Changes throughout the week. Every show is different, but it's like the, cumulatively by Sunday you have a, basically a different show. It's deeper in places. There's the, the dynamic is is colored in different ways to where it, it becomes hopefully more specific. And after a run for a while of doing a play, I feel like it really charges my batteries in acting. Like the questions that you need to ask yourself as an actor when approaching any role are more uh, immediate. They're they're right in the forefront of your brain. So. It's easier to tackle whatever role, whether it's a pirate or a, or a leading role. A lot of you know film actors will come and do
0: a show, and it's like, oh my god, performances! <laughs> I'm not going back. Oh my god, pay cut. But you know, you've pretty consistently over the past like you know eight years, done theater, done film, back and forth, and back and forth. And so I'm curious how you view theaters fitting into your overall career plan. Is it a release for you? Is it
2: something to do something different? I consider theater. This is a vacation for me from L.A. Uh, I've sort of viewed this as I get to have this vacation, and during my vacation, I get to work on acting. I use it's like an acting class, and if I go too long without doing a play, I just I feel I feel empty, like approaching a role. I just feel like the the pool is very shallow that uh, I'm drawing from, and so. I, I need to come back and do a play, and fortunately I've been able to, uh, every couple of years. I think I went one once, like three years without doing a play, and I just about lost my money. And then came back and did Spamalot. But that was a very different experience. That wasn't yeah, like— Tell us uh, about Spamalot,
0: because you were—you're uh, pretty nuts in that. I actually got a chance to catch you when you came in. You were, like, you were like our nice surprise when we found out that all of a sudden the lead actors that we thought we were paying to see were gone. And yeah. they were like, "Well, wait, look, Alan Tudyk's in it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're happy. <laughs> uh, Cool, man. Yeah, it, uh, it was this just lucky thing that happened. Hank Azaria, who played the role of, who originated Lancelot, it's, the role is Lancelot, then you also do the French taunter, and uh, the knight who says knee, and Tim the Enchanter. You definitely ate up the French taunter right now. <laughs> yeah, man, that was a fun one. I liked him. Uh, it's the, my favorite roles from the movie is how I, how I came to it uh like most people he had that show huff on showtime that uh he he had to go back and shoot a season so he had to be gone for six months the Tonys were on a sunday mike nichols won best director it won best musical and then and sada ramirez won best uh leading actress in musical and it was right at that crazy time where there were just the The stage door was just ten people deep, and the the audiences were raucous, and we were at capacity. It was amazing and I got to step in with the entire original cast and play for six months at, at that I mean it was like just as the wave was hitting its perfect spot, Hank jumped off the surfboard and said, "Jump on, buddy, it's yours and i it was it was great. It was a great wave to ride for six months, and I say that not being a surfer <laughs> but it was it was uh, it was more of a performance, I and mean, what I get like Prelude is, is great because it does change every performance, and and, it, and it's going to grow up until uh, April 29th ninth when we when we're done. But for Spamalot, because it's it's multi role, you're playing four different roles, and it is very sketch like. The, the Lancelot role had a little bit more meat to it because it, it had changed a little bit uh, from even the movie. There was some new stuff that Eric Idle had written, but like the French taunter, of the knight who says he, you exploit every laugh and you find every way to make it as funny as possible and use what you have to make it as funny playing with the other actors and and what they're giving you you know it gets to a certain point rarely are you given permission to literally chew the scenery is <laughs> exactly <laughs> but at a certain point you've you've turned over every rock for funny and you've and then it's about maintaining th- that for And I think it was, I did about 200 performances of it. And about 100 performances, I was like, great. I feel like I've really exploited every place I can find for... What is funny, because it is such a comedy, and it is such performance, it is entertainment. It really, you know, once you're in a musical, there is a a huge opportunity for that. I mean, you're singing and dancing, going, ha-ha, ta-da, at the end of the numbers. But it's a different kind of discipline you have to uh, go through to maintain that kind of performance. Whereas the great thing with Prelude and straight plays is that you do get the chance to grow. And when you have one role that has a through line throughout, then... You get to play all between, you know, you know what you want. You figure out what you want, how you're going to get it, and what what your obstacles are within the play, and then, and then they just it just changes over time. It deepens. It uh, it's it's a blast. I, I'm enjoying it, and I'm I'm sad we're only going to the end of April. But we're having a blast. We'll we'll have a blast up until the end. I'm sure there won't be any point where we're like, oh God, we've got two shows to do today. Nobody approaches you, you know every show you get that every once in a while where you just beat tired and you just don't want to do it and you're like, how is this even going to happen? But this one is not like that at all, and I don't expect it to be, because it is so short. You know? Now, you grew up in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So where did you migrate first as you decided
1: you were going
0: <laughs>
2: to make your career in entertainment? New York City. New York City. I always wanted to come here, and uh, I went to Juilliard, and actually Sada Ramirez who I mentioned earlier, who went to, uh, was in my class. We were group 26, group 26 at Juilliard, and I hadn't – I had been to a school for two years in Texas and drama and learned some things and then was in comedy troupes and stuff in Dallas and uh, realized that I needed to make a choice and also that I didn't know very much. And somebody told me Juilliard was a good school. And that's all I knew about it was that it was a – this person told me the best school in the country. So cool. I audition for it then and did and got in. Luckily, he just sort of, oh, cool! Now I'm going to go to this this place in in New York, and that really began everything for me. I mean, my that, the education there was it was intense, and uh, I only went for three years. It's a four-year program, but. By the third year, I was kind of done. The fourth year is, <laughs> is all performance, and um, there's no more classes, and that was sort of what I was there for. I, well, I want to take the classes. Oh, okay, we're done with classes. We're doing What plays are we doing? And they're always, oh, it's a 15th century Spanish play called The Chambermaid's Daughter. Nobody ever does it, and we're going to do it. Yeah, nobody ever does it for a reason. What they were planning to do, their season wasn't exciting. And I had luckily um, uh, worked at New York Stage and Film one summer between my second and third year and made some contacts and and started work on a early in the play, Bunny Bunny, which went off Broadway. It was the first play I was ever in professionally in New York and uh, with Bruno Kirby and uh, Paula Kale. I got uh, one of those Theater World Awards and it was was an exciting time. I got the, what is that, the the Clarence Derwent Award, the Equity Award, which is cool because it has a cash prize with it, which was better than a trophy, especially (laughs) when you're a struggling (laughs) actor and you can't pay rent. Um, uh, So that was a great introduction for me into the theater and for the theater, New York theater people to see me. Cause I, in that one, again, I played multiple roles. I played like 20 something roles. It was a three person play. Gilda Radner and Alan Zweibel were the two lead characters and it went over their relationship over several years and told the story of their relationship and then I played everybody else in the play. So it was men, women, uh, different ethnicities, um, lots of accents, lots of wigs, mustaches, stuff like that. I was always running off stage changing, coming back on and I think it was kind of neat to watch, I think. Uh, But New York and then L.A. just kind of happened uh, over time and now I live there. I don't know. It just kind of happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know two years, in 2004-2005, you
0: participated in the 24-Hour Play Festival. Yeah. And uh, you missed it last year, but are you planning on
2: going, doing that again? And, and Tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> I'm fairly sure I'm going to do the 24-Hour Plays until I do one I hate. <laughs> Isn't that awful? I, it's so scary. It is so scary. Because you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know at, at all. You, you know, people who know the 24-Hour Plays, you meet on a... I guess it's on a Sunday night at like 11 p.m. You meet the other actors. Everybody introduces themselves. You bring in a couple of props, just that you had lying around the house you thought might be useful to someone. There are playwrights. I guess there's 10 of them or 8 of them. I think 8, eight 4 and 4. Uh, 8 playwrights, 8 directors. They can choose to use some of the props in their plays. Others don't. And then everybody meets each other. The actors all go away. The, and the playwrights write plays all night long. And they tend to be like 10 minutes long. They get assigned directors and they get assigned actors. You come in Monday morning at like 8 8 a.m. And you have a script that's been written all night long. You meet your cast and your director and you quickly get off book. And then you stage it. And that night there's an audience on Broadway in the American Airlines Theater, um, uh, where Prelude is right now. It's so scary. It is so scary. It it was the first thing I did when I had like had three or four years off of of theater. I I did the 24-hour plays. And... I've never had anxiety like that before I walked onto the stage because I had so many lines. It was a very funny. Um, uh, I feel like one of those nightmares where you feel like you're going on stage and you don't know. Yes. No. <laughs> and David Lindsay it was a David Lindsay a airplane. His his things are always so funny at those. And uh, but they're very line specific and quick to get his humor to get it right. You have to be kind of quick. And if you've just learned the lines it's it 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 makes for a scary time but the audience is so accepting of it and so ready to support you that it just becomes uh, it, was, it was a high that night i i after that show i was so i was so high just from the experience it was great so do you have any future plans for theater
0: on the horizon or is it back to film or you got a couple films opening soon too don't you yeah
2: yeah i got i got a couple um uh There's a I have a small role in um, it's called Knocked Up, which is is supposedly really good. It's gotten some great reviews. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but it's Judd Apatow's new movie. But the one that I'm really excited about I did last summer in London, Frank Oz directed, and it's called Death at a Funeral. And it is a farce. And it's I'm anxious to see how it does because Frank cast whoever he wanted and they allowed him to cast whoever he wanted and it, it what it ended up happening was You've got a cast of actors who are not necessarily name actors that people go, oh, I'm going to go see the new Russell Crowe movie, or, or what? You know, there isn't the star attached to it that gives it uh, that kind of box office heft. It's just actors doing this very funny script, and um, the audiences that they've shown it to, it's uh, gone really well. And it was just at the uh, HBO, what is that, Aspen Comedy Festival, and it won the Audience Award, which was great. But I play a guy on... He's, a very, he's an Englishman who takes place at this funeral, and he's English, and he's a very sort of nervous fellow. And on the way, I, we stop by to... It's my fiancé's uncle who's passed, and we're on the way. And I don't want to go. Her father hates me. It's just it's awful. The whole thing is just stressful. And we stop by to pick up her brother, and he's a drug dealer. And we don't know that. He's just made a, a drug deal over the phone. Uh, he's a pharmacy student and he's like, listen, this is the best stuff you'll ever, you'll ever take. So only take half because it's acid mixed with ketamine mixed with speed. And he puts him in a Valium bottle. We go to pick him up. He's getting dressed and my fiance offers me a Valium to relax me because I'm just so upset. And I take Valium. In the first ten minutes of the movie, I'm f- fairly normal, and then for the rest of the movie, I'm out of my mind. This is where they go, call Alan Tudyk. Yeah, we got a crazy person. <laughs> we need somebody. We need somebody who's really good at losing their mind on film. And uh, get me that pirate. You know, you do a film, and you you have hopes for it, and you you read it, and you see it one way in your head, and you shoot it, and things happen, and it, it'll always change from what you what you started out. And sometimes it turns out better. Sometimes it. But, I don't know, as movies go, this one, I've never had the experience of seeing a thing and liking it better than what I read. And I really liked what I read. I think Frank Oz did a wonderful job with it. He did an amazing job editing it. And it stays funny pretty much throughout the movie. Peter Dinklage, also another New York actor, is in it. Uh, We're the only two Americans and the rest are Brits. But it is uh, wildly funny. It comes out in... And, uh, and I wouldn't say that I don't say that about things I do but this one's really funny um, if you want a good laugh see so death at a funeral in at the end of June so it's like the competition's going to be there's like six movies opening that weekend <laughs> and this is this little seven million dollar movie you know going to be up against who knows what Spider-Man 9 you know whatever it'll this year's a little bit sunshine you can. Uh, we can only hope it, it does something because that was a fun movie and in another little movie. I tend to like farces, and if I could do another play, if I could just get, pick any play, I would just do a farce, some farce, oh, Fadò, something.
0: On a kind of random topic, you must know a little bit of what that sci-fi geekdom appeal I, is because you also appeared in a show that has like this insanely
2: cultish. Yeah, <laughs> obsession. Yeah, Firefly. It was actually when I moved out to uh, out to L.A. is what that's what moved me out there. Uh, we did half a season of a show called Firefly. Joss Whedon. It was space cowboys, basically. We were criminals, but there were horses. It, it, it was a interesting idea, and uh, we loved it. And we got canceled. It was on Fox. We, they they didn't put us on. They take us off. They put us on. It was it, we didn't get a fair shake when it came out on DVD. The DVD's sales were huge, and uh, they realized that there was something there. And so Universal actually realized it, bought the rights from Fox. Joss Whedon, who had created the show, was not done writing for the show. So they made a movie, Serenity, which came out. Those fans are... The Most Devoted. They're great. They're fantastic.
0: So I met have, you, a, have you
2: gone to, like, what, Comic-Con or anything? Yeah, I've been to a couple of those <laughs> things. And they'll be like, it's amazing. They'll give you a microphone and an audience of 4,000 people and say, could you just talk for about an hour? what an experience man of an audience that just wants to support whatever you say you can talk about anything and usually ask questions and talk but it's a it's a lot of fun and a lot of the cast members we got along really well and uh, Nathan Fillion and I do whenever I've gone to those it's always got to make sure Nathan's with me who played the captain we're very close friends so it's just like hey man you want to go hang out with a microphone and a few thousand people (laughs) yeah it's it's it can be a lot of fun for it seems like everybody has a good time
0: well, I definitely thank you for stopping yeah, in man.
2: real time, and everybody can get a chance to catch you
0: through April 29th in
2: Prelude to a Kiss? Yes. They extended yes. it then a little bit, didn't they? They did. It has, it has extended by a week. Yeah. We get that extra eight performances. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure, and thanks so much for stopping down. Cheers. My yeah. pleasure. All right, man.
3: On the boards.
0: TheaterWorks specializes in developing original family plays and musicals, and we've got a great new offering at Theater Works. What could be more appropriate than Anne of Green Gables? We've got the composer, Nancy Ford, here with us, as well as Piper Goodeve and Jessica Grovet. How are you guys doing?
4: Fine. How are you?
0: <laughs> now, Piper, you are Anne. Yes. And Jessica, you are? Diana
4: Barry, okay. Anne's bosom friend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want to talk with Nancy about how she came up writing the show, but maybe the two of you can really quick uh, set up what... The story of Anne of Green Gables is, for those not familiar with their uh, classics.
5: Well, they should definitely read it, first of all, (laughs) because it's a wonderful book. Um, And uh, we start by seeing Anne, who's an orphan. Her name's Anne Shirley. Um, She's lived all over the place in Canada, near Prince Edward Island, bouncing from family to family. And she ends up, by mistake, at um, a brother and sister's house, Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert. And they had sent to find a boy at an orphanage, and they got a girl, by mistake and um, she comes to live with them and they decide to keep her and she completely changes their entire world and for the better. So um, and it's just a very touching story about finding a home and people who love you.
0: All right. So, Nancy, what drew you to this project as a composer?
3: <laughs> well, Theater Works drew us to it because I think Gretchen Cryer, who wrote the book and lyrics, and I may be the only two women in the world who never read this book when we were growing up. <laughs> and uh, we we were talking to Theater Works about doing a show for them because Gretchen and I have written shows for the American girls. We've written American Girls Review and Circle of Friends that are playing in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. We loved writing for uh, young people. So we talked to Works and said, have you got a project that you would, and they said, well, how about Anne of Green Gables? We said, well, we'll have to read it. And we did, and we just fell in love with the story. I mean, yes, it's kind of a children's story, but it has so much in it that is for adults too. It's just a very heartwarming and delightful story because Anne is this girl with this tremendous imagination, and it's her imagination That gives her a life. Otherwise, she would, her life would be tragic. But because (laughs) she can rise above that, she just makes up all these fantasies, and she's a totally delightful character. And Piper is totally, totally delightful playing her, and we're so wonderful. It's wonderful to have Jessica in it too. These two. We're good friends in real life, which we did not even know when Jessica came into to audition. And we said, oh, you know." And then it turned out that they were already bosom buddies. So <laughs> that didn't have to be changed. Anyway. And now, and
0: now I hear fun. they've offered to help set up a MySpace page for you.
4: Yes. yes. I'm going to do that for you. <laughs> yeah. Me. I need to get into the 21st century. We do. Nancy Ford, composer. Exactly. <laughs> MySpace.com.
0: Well, before we continue, maybe let's uh, hear we got a very special thing. You guys are going to be doing a couple exclusive live in studio performances here for our audience. So before we continue, which one of these, the two songs do you guys want to do first?
5: Really stay right? Yeah. Well, Go I can stay. Order. Comes first in yeah. the show, so.
0: Okay. Do we need any setup for this? Or?
5: Up until this point in the show, it's un- you're unsure of whether or not they're going to keep Anne. They may send her back to the asylum. They may send her to live with Mrs. Blewett down the road, who has a reputation of being a horrible woman and just very mean to everybody. And this is the scene where Anne overhears um, Matthew and Marilla talking in the kitchen. And you're going to be
0: playing the piano yourself, Nancy, correct? I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
5: I
6: can stay. She said I can stay. Did I just hear that? Is it quite clear? She wants me to stay. I can stay. She said I can stay. My heart is beating. I heard her repeating. She wants me to stay. Crying Then there's no denying My heart's full of joy But who would have conceived it? Who would have believed it? That she just said she'd keep me Although I'm not even alive I can stay I can stay She won't have to send me away I can't say she's my kindred spirit Or actually anywhere near it But somehow I'll get her to like me And not through the day She let me stay I can stay I can stay I can stay You said I can stay feel like dancing and skipping and prancing the whole night away. Hello stars, hello moon. Isn't it strange how your whole life can change in an instant so soon? No denying I'm silly for crying when I feel like life was tragical. This moment is magical. And I won't have to dwell in the depths of despair anymore. I must pray. I can stay. I'll pull in my wings, though I'm bursting with things yet to say. Try and be ever so quiet and not talk that's hard. But I'll try it. If I want them to keep me, I must not get carried away so I can remain Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables. Determined to try to be quiet, be good and respectful and not lose my temper and fold my clothes neatly, and not be a bother. I'm bound and determined to
0: stay. What are the elements that you feel about the show connect with a modern audience? You
4: know. It's a young girl's adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I think anyone can relate to that. And, As Nancy said earlier, Anne's imagination just brings so much joy into everybody's life. Especially, like, my character Diana is very prim and proper and wouldn't (laughs) even think to, like, run through the field. Her mother would hang her. (laughs) So uh, when Anne comes into my life, I'm completely
5: changed and I'm able to, like, let loose and have Mm -hmm. fun and... I think also um, I, I, I read the books a lot when I was younger, and then I went back, obviously, and reread them again um, doing the show. And the thing that I'm always struck by that I think is kind of something I try to bring into my life more now that I've been working on this part is that constantly throughout the book, she keeps saying, oh, it's so tragical that, you know, the leaves fall off the trees but isn't it wonderful to live in a world where the trees have leaves? And she just <laughs> always, you know, yeah. she constantly, every bad situation, she turns into a beautiful story. And, mm-hmm. and she has a way of just of constantly being positive, even though all these bad things have happened to her.
3: And I think uh, everyone, no matter what age we are, has a certain concept of home and what we would like for home to be. And Anne, who has not really had a home until she comes and lives with Matthew and Marilla, and then is confronted with these two people, one who really understands her, but Marilla, who doesn't, and Marilla, who's afraid to let her emotions show this older woman, she they, as they say in the show, she's 63, and she can't let her emotions show to Anne. It's like she doesn't want to make any promises that she can't keep, and she doesn't know if it's going to work out when they end. So she holds her at bay almost throughout the whole show and finally is able to let her real feelings, which all along she's loved this child, but she couldn't let it show. So at the end, Anne has a real home, and I think that's, that connects up with everybody of any age. Hmm.
0: Piper and Jessica, are either of you from New York? No. no. I didn't sense so that mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> no. how, how, long, how long have the two of you been plying your craft here?
4: I've technically lived here for six years, but I was a, a kind of a kid in the business. Um, I played Dorothy in Wizard of Oz when I was 15 at Madison Square Garden, but I only moved here then when I was 19. So uh, I... I've lived here for six years, and I love it.
5: <laughs> I don't want to live anywhere else. <laughs> I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. And Piper? Um, I'm originally from New Hampshire, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and like Anne spent so many days like tromping through fields and climbing trees and everything. So um, coming to the city was a big change for me. I came to New York um, to go to NYU. And I was here for four years then. And um, I've been in and out of the city since then, uh, lived in London for about three years and just moved back to the city from Providence, Rhode, Rhode Island. I was at Trinity Rep there.
0: The ad campaign pretty much focuses on your face. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> how, how does that feel to have your face plastered all over New York?
5: <laughs> um, it's taken some getting used to, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, uh it's great. I mean, you know, any press or any publicity is good, so um and the more that it can sell tickets to bring people in to see this amazing show, um, I'm all for it. Um, it's still a little bit weird walking by the marquee at the Lord mm-hmm. <laughs> <'cause laughs> she's, she's My giant head's, like, <laughs> it's the entire size of the door and I just I kind of have to not look at it, but um <laughs> you know. <laughs> um (laughs) I think... uh, I I, I don't know. I think it's great. I think the more that people see the ad... And whether they like it or not, I know there's been some some chats on the online about oh, really? about how terrible they think it is. But if that makes them interested <laughs> in the show, then I'm all for it. The so. thing is, is this
4: girl is beautiful in real life, and so it's it's a it's
5: a cute picture of of Anna Green Gables, but it's nothing what Piper looks like. <laughs> well, and she's supposed the character, you know, constantly says, you know, oh, no one's gonna want to marry me because I'm so homely, you know, and She's constantly battling with with her outward appearance, um, and uh, so I think you know it's good as an actress to put aside any yeah. vanity and play a role like that. And so. then
3: just think, everybody's going to be so surprised when, when they, they come <laughs> to the theater and they see you. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, before we continue, maybe let's do the the second song we're going to perform. Uh, so, what's this one about?
4: This is shortly after um, Anne comes to Diana's house and they meet for the first time, and Anne grabs her and, and takes her off to the field, basically kidnaps her. <laughs> and they uh, they pick flowers and have a lovely time on the hillside. And um, this is when they they swear to be best friends forever and ever. It's very funny because in about two seconds,
3: Anne asks <laughs> Diana, do you think that you could like me well enough to be my bosom buddy? And <laughs> Diana's just Kind of taken aback and doesn't know what to say, but she, she finally says something. I think I, well, I guess I could do, do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very sweet moment in the show. I think it's maybe my favorite moment mm-hmm. in the show.
6: It's our love duet. <laughs> yeah. All right. I solemnly swear to be faithful to my bosom friend, Diana Berry, as long as the sun and the moon shall endure. Now you. I solemnly swear to be faithful to my bosom friend and surely as long as the sun sun and the moon shall endure (laughs) You're a strange girl, Anne. But I think I'm going to like you real well. This day will be etched in my memory A turning point in life, I guess It's so lovely that you're willing To be my bosom friend Even though I'm wearing such an ugly dress Oh no, Anne It's not so ugly Yes it is, Diana You can be honest with me Bosom friends have to be honest with each other Well It doesn't really matter if it's ugly Thank you, Diana You're a real friend Now we have so much to talk about so much to do explore the things we never did before i met you we'll go on such adventures there's no mountain we can't climb we can spend our days making up for lost time To think, so much to think, so much to plan. Today begins the history of Diana and Anne And now that we're together and we're feeling so sublime, we can spend our days, we can spend the rest of our lives, we can spend our days.
0: Nancy, you're bright eyed newcomer theater,
3: aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, I think they call it veteran, maybe. Well, um, the first show that Gretchen Cryer and I had in New York also took place at the Lortel Theater. It was known as the Delice in those days. It was 1967. And actually, my very first job in New York was at that same theater when I was the accompanist for Lottie Lenya in a play called Brecht on Brecht. So uh, it's really fun for me to be back home in that theater again. I have a a lot of memories, good and bad. I mean, you know, it's like walking into follies or something. (laughs) And I'm still here. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, no, it Yes, I've been around a while in the theater, yeah. You know. In the 60s and 70s, see Gretchen and I, most of our shows in New York were done in the 70s. We had uh, Now's the Time was in 1967, then 1970, 70, we did a show called The Last Week Days of Isaac, that was at the East Side Playhouse, and then in 72, a Broadway show, Shelter, and then Probably the one we're most known for is getting my act together and taking it on the road, which was in 1978. That ran for three years, and that was, you know, done in a lot of countries. So that was pretty well known. But so it's it's been a while since we've done an off Broadway show. And I,
4: there's a lot. We have of, a lot of elements. Yeah, and, and yeah, a lot of elements. Uh, the set is gorgeous, and our lighting it is, is yeah. amazing, and our costumes are incredible. But part of uh, what takes a lot of time is uh, Piper has. So many quick changes as Anne because she ages so rapidly. And this is a two and a half hour show that they have cut down to 90 minutes Mm -hmm. for theater work. So Mm -hmm. um, Piper has changes where she runs off stage, changes her wig and her dress in a matter of like 10
5: seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with yeah, we one would, dresser. I would tape it during rehearsals, during run-throughs mm-hmm. and and I'd look over at the stage manager and she'd be like 7 seconds. <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, "Oh no, how is this going to happen?" But the dressers are amazing and they've rigged all the costumes and, you know,
3: I haven't seen <laughs> since I haven't been at tech. I haven't seen the wigs. How many wigs do you have? I on have the show? a long
5: red wig. A when long green wig, <laughs> a short green wig, a short red wig, and then a an older Anne wig where there's like a bun. A, a bun on it that Her gets attached. Up-do. So, my updo. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Because you age over the show yeah, from um, twelve to sixteen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. This is running in New York through May fifth mm-hmm. with Theater Works, and I know the Theater Works usually tour stuff, so you think there's a good chance that this is going to be touring around? Oh, it country,
3: definitely so? is. It goes next into rehearsal next, September 22nd for the tour. Oh, so they have set oh, that yeah, up the tour
0: mm-hmm. Oh, great, because a lot of our listeners are around the country as well, so they can definitely... Yeah, on,
5: the, on the TheatreWorks website, um, which is TWUSA.org, <laughs> they can click on um, our production and then also there's a link on our production for the national That's
7: tour.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I definitely thank you for coming down for such a great performance and interview, (laughs) especially while you're in the midst of craziness. (laughs)
4: Thank you. (laughs) you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. The Call Board.
8: Hi, this is Ryan Davis, the executive producer and creator of Breaking In, a new series about musical theater in New York. Uh, Please visit our website at breakinginblog.com to to see a trailer and come to our launch party at New World Stages Sunday, April the 1st at 9 p.m. More details on our website, breakinginblog.com. And I will be there, too,
0: on April 1st at the New World Stages, so come down and check it out. Uh, Those guys, by the way, if you aren't aware, are also the creators of White Noise the Musical, which is heading to Off-Broadway, and we interviewed them in our very first episode, Volume 1. Also remember we just have a few days left for you to get registered on the Broadway Bullet website for the Fanyang-tastic Broadway Bullet Birthday Bubble Blowout. It's going to be my birthday party on April 26th uh, for everybody. I'd love everybody to come. We got uh, 75 pairs of tickets to give away for this show. So uh, please register. Also we we got enough tickets that uh, I know a lot of people are registering from out of town too so we're going to definitely go to the Pool of Registers registered users first but please do email me at info at broadwaybullet.com if you would like to attend because we can probably make sure to get you there i'd love to see all of my listeners there and besides the show we're gonna definitely have some uh drinks afterwards uh if not at the new world stages bar we'll meet there and figure out where to go somewhere close afterwards but um I think it'll be a lot of fun. I've seen the tail end of the show when I went over there, and, and it definitely looks, uh, I mean, it's you know, it's not Les Mis, but it definitely looks entertaining and fun. For other call board announcements, on April 2nd, A Step, Art Striving to End Poverty, fundraiser, A Night at the Tonys, with Raul Esparza and Stephanie DeBruzzo. For more information, visit www.createsomethinggood.org. And on April 16th, we have Seth's Broadway 101, a benefit for the Actors Fund, featuring Seth Rudetsky, and some of Broadway's best leading ladies. For more info, visit www.actorsfund.org. And remember, every week you can get links to these and anything we talk about in the show, the interviews, whatever. You can find all those links on our show notes at broadwaybullet.com.
6: On
3: the boards.
0: South African Athol Fugard has written many plays that I'm sure many are familiar with. Master Harold and the Boys, among others, have been his Tony-nominated plays. His newest has been performed all around the country. and In fact, New York is one of the last places to see it. And veterans of all those productions are here with us. The director and the actors, how are you guys doing?
9: Hey, we're doing well. You want to take a second to introduce yourselves for everybody? I'm Stephen Sachs. I'm the director of the play. I'm Moreland Higgins, and I play Andre. I'm William Dennis Hurley, and I play the playwright. Now, how long have you guys been involved with Exits and Entrances,
0: which is now opening at 59 East 59th Street for primary stages?
9: It uh, had its premiere at the Fountain Theater in Los Angeles in 2004, and we've been enjoying uh, productions of it around the country. It's just been a, a real labor of love for us, and the play has done just phenomenally well in each city that it's appeared. Now, I'm looking at your bios from the show, and it
0: kind of seems like one could play a game of where's Waldo, but where's the ovation? You guys have tons of Los Angeles Ovation Awards between the three of you. Uh, there, is there a couple you guys want to maybe highlight out?
10: gotta <laughs> <laughs> yeah, highlight out. There's, they're sitting next to the, uh, the pots and pans in my uh, kitchen at home. Uh, no, it's just, you know, the ovation is like sort of the... Uh, it's a community-voted uh, award, and it's sort of like they, they call themselves the, uh, the, the, the Tonys of L.A., but uh, they make nice paperweights.
9: <laughs> uh, Moreland had the distinction uh, the year that we did Exits and Entrances in Los Angeles of winning every single uh, lead actor award in Los Angeles that year. He won every one. Yeah, cost me an arm and a leg.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of banquets to go to, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Exits and Entrances is kind of unique in the fact that, uh, William, you are playing basically Atholf Hugard in the show. I am. As the playwright. Indeed. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what Exits and Entrances is actually about, because it's a two-person show, but it's very kind of semi-autobiographical and a little less political than some of his other works have been. Isn't that right?
8: Sure. Exit and Entrances, I think, is a very personal play by Athol, and it's a tribute to not only the theater, but to his extraordinary friendship with this great actor back in South Africa in the 1950s, um, Andre Ujane, who is a actor that he ended up being a dresser for in a production of Oedipus Rex and learned very much from and ended up influencing a lot of what Athol wrote about for the rest of his life. He was at the beginning of his journey as a playwright. This man was sort of toward the end of his journey as an actor and how their two lives collided and opinions collided and influenced each other.
0: Now, Stephen,
9: you've, you've worked with on a few of Athol's works before, haven't you?
8: Yeah, my, my
9: relationship with Athol began in 2000 uh, when I directed the Los Angeles premiere of his play The Road to Mecca and uh, at my theater, the Fountain Theater in Los Angeles, which is an intimate 80-seat space in L.A. Uh, and as a rule, Athol never goes to see uh, productions of his work directed by other people. But he had heard lots of good things about... Yeah, we should add that those Tony nominations were for writing and directing. Yes, he always (laughs) directs his own plays, as a rule. Uh, He he had always done that. But he had heard good things about uh, our production of Mecca and was finally convinced to kind of sneak in and have a peek. And he was there one night and saw our production and was so taken with it that uh, he and I began Uh, an artistic collaboration and and through email and and phone. And he actually has a home uh, also in uh, Southern California as well as South Africa. And so he and I began a dialogue, a creative dialogue. And I always said to him, if he's ever looking for a, a small, safe, creative home to create a new work away from the larger institutional theater organizations at the Fountain Theater is his artistic home. And one day he sent me this email with a file attachment on it, and uh, on the email it said, Attached is my new play, and I want you to direct it. And I opened up, and he said, It's a small play. (laughs) And so I downloaded the file, I opened it up, I read this script, and just wept. I mean, it was so beautiful. Such a beautiful, large small play, and I just thought it was extraordinary, and I just called him up immediately and said, Athel, this is just beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful script, and I'm just thrilled to do it, and, and that's how this remarkable journey began.
0: A lot of shows, when they come to New York, well, a lot of shows that originate in New York have, like, maybe, you know, if they're lucky, a month rehearsal period you know, a lot of times, and even if they're transferring, sometimes it's only been in production for a few weeks, in a lot of cases, it's been out of production for a long time, getting ready to move, but you guys have been doing this Pretty frequently since 2004. What does it feel like as actors and
8: as a director to be hitting New York with a play so fully realized? I think it's fantastic. I mean, Stephen mentioned before this is a labor of love for all of us, and so um, you know, I have agents in California that are you know a little bit anxious to have me come back there, but they completely understand I'm away during pilot this is for the second consecutive pilot season actually. Ooh, that's that's yeah. a
0: rough season to be away for. <laughs> but um,
8: it's it's without a question for me. I mean, I and now we're here in New York, so yeah, we've been traveling around a bit. We did um, we were in Los Angeles to begin with, and then. We went to Santa Barbara and to Florida Stage and to New Jersey, new Jersey Rep, and now we're here at Primary Stages, so uh, we're all incredibly excited to be here. And believe it or not, it's we're on stage in this theater here, and we can't, more and I both can't believe how brand-new things still are. <laughs> a play we've done many, many times, and it's just the two of us up there, but we keep working and finding things because the writing is just extraordinary. And...
10: Yeah, this is, this is my first experience of doing a play this many times. We've done a couple hundred shows, and... Uh, what I've discovered is that you hit uh, around 80 or 100 performances and then you start, everything becomes completely new. So now, even now, every time I go to it, every time every time we do the next rehearsal of it, I'm going, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little silly, but I mean, you know, you get caught in the minutiae of it a little bit, but it, it feels fresher than ever to me. I, didn't, I just love that. And that is a testament to... Uh, Adam's writing, I think. You
0: know, this wasn't like a bus and truck tour. You actually did the show for like longer periods of times in a bunch of different places. And I would think, okay. just on a side note, that it has to be fascinating to get to just kind of like live in experience a bunch of different communities, not just like pass through. And <laughs> oh,
10: absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I had never been to New Jersey before. And, you know, I mean, you say New Jersey, pretty much most of the places in this, in this country. And, and, you know, people have a, little, a whole slew of jokes that can go right, right along with it. You know. <laughs> so but let I, me see. I got my Rolodex here. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, so I didn't know what to expect, but I loved it. I had a great time. The people were fantastic. And that, that uh, New Jersey rep, the people there, this tiny little theater, what a great crew of people. And, you know, we found the same thing in Florida, in Santa Barbara. It's, uh, theater is uh, alive and well everywhere in this country.
0: Now, Stephen, as you're kind of getting this play together, how often in the little back of your mind was kind of the thought that, you know, I get to do this play first, and uh, he normally likes to direct, I don't want to mess
9: this one up? <laughs> oh, I was very much aware of it. And, I mean, I have the honor of being, I think, the first director ever trusted by Athol to direct the world premiere of a new play of his. That's right, first time. With that comes a lot of uh, responsibility, but he is just such a, a giving, generous soul, and it was a, a delight to work with him on this play, and I think he enjoyed the collaboration as as well. Working on the script, uh, he was very open to suggestions from myself and from, from, the, the, from uh, the two actors. I, he would come up to rehearsal every Friday. We would be working on the script. He did a, a few revisions before some rehearsals began, and then he would come up uh, on the Friday and have a look at what we did, and we would share with him what we had found. And he would—he would, he's the kind of theater artist that just gets in the trenches with you and, and enjoys all of that, uh, the, the process of creating work. He's just vibrantly alive and and full of spirit and so generous and self-effacing, uh, that uh, he, he puts you
8: immediately at ease. And, you, and one, I think, just loves being in his company. I can still remember when we all got together for the first table reading in Los Angeles of the play. And we all sat around a table just to read the play. That's the first thing everyone does. And we're all sitting there, and Athol was coming to the table reading. And so I still remember sitting there all like incredibly nervous and just ready to begin this and the man walked in the room and I think everyone was immediately disarmed he's so his spirit and his the life and love of the theater just he just exudes it out of every pore and so he walked in the room and I just went ah oh. <laughs> and then we had the, you know sat around and had a great conversation first and um of course there were many more people there that are normally there because it was an world premiere but uh it was really really he's really a, a wonderful wonderful man and a man of the theater and a man of collaboration and was so ready for this play to be given to the actors and the director
10: yeah, that was a very low pressure situation. Twenty of us in a room to read a two-character play. I'm sitting right next to the head critic at the LA Weekly who was actively making notes as we're speaking. It's the first time it's said out it loud. And he's sitting right next to Athel Fugard, and it was
8: looking across at each other, going, I'm not nervous, are you? <laughs> no pressure. We had to go around the table and introduce ourselves. And I was sitting right next to Athel and I said, I'm William Dennis Hurley, and I play the playwright, and then Athel said, I'm Alfalf God, and I am the playwright. <laughs> <laughs> so the show's opening on March 27th at Primary Stages? Yes. Mm-hmm. At, at 59, East 59th Street. And Correct. you are running until? Until April 29th. So we'll open on uh, Tuesday, the 27th of March, and close on April 29th.
10: And where can people go for tickets? Call Smart That's the place to go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I appreciate you coming down. I know it's a busy schedule for you here, getting ready to mount the show, but uh, it's been fascinating to hear about it. I wish everybody the best and uh, another great New York premiere for
9: Athol Fugard. Thank you, Michael. Always a good thing. Thanks.
11: On the Positive Side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the Positive Side. For some reason over the last couple of years, I don't know unexplainable reason. Uh, I've avoided Broadway by the Year at a Town Hall. I don't know why I did, especially after seeing last night's show. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful. They did the shows of 1938. What's really great about it, the man who produces the show, Scott Siegel, uh, narrates the whole show uh, and he does some funny quips Uh, He let you know what happened in 1938. Some interesting things happened then, like discovered oil in Saudi Arabia, of all things, and they learned how to uh, split the atom, which led to a lot of great things over the years. But he had some interesting quips about the musicals that were written then. I think that was the first year that we heard At Long Last Love, that Cole Porter wrote At Long Last Love. And a young big band singer named Martin made her debut in a musical called Leave It to Me, in which she sang My Heart Belongs to Daddy, uh, which Shannon Lewis did fantastically. Uh, She did this great dance number choreographed by Andy Blankenbuehler. And you also had some people like the legendary... Well, kind of legendary Martin, Martin Vidnovic, who's been around Broadway for about 30 years now. I think the first time I saw him was in 1977 and the revival of King and I. He did the 80 revival of Oklahoma. He was fantastic. He did some comic numbers, you know. You had two of the greatest modern day matinee idols, Yu Pinaro and Aaron Lazar. They were both fantastic. Each one got to do a, n- a bunch of numbers. And sometimes they did it as duets, and sometimes they did it alone, uh, or as ensemble pieces. The wonderful Sarah Oriotti Berry, who's done Beauty and the Beast, Les Mis, the fantastic Christiane Noll, who has an operatic voice. Uh, she did a wonderful version of Falling in Love with Love, the Richard Rogers song. Uh, I think all these composers, Rogers and Hart and... Cole Porter what at at the top of their game, even if if the musicals that they were writing were unconsequential, some of the songs were great. I discovered a, a wonderful cabaret artist, Connie Pachel. I just had a great time last night. And if you have the opportunity, they're doing a couple more. They're doing the musicals of 1959, which is always a good time. I think Gypsy opened in 1959. Uh, They're doing a second part of the 1964 series in which you have things like Fiddler on the Roof, Hello, Dolly, What Makes Sammy Run, to name a few. If you've never been, if you've never seen these, I suggest you buy tickets. Actually, the tickets for these shows are kind of hard to get. If you buy them now, you'll probably sit upstairs in the balcony somewhere, but it's, it's absolutely worth it. I had a ball, and I know you will. I was remiss in mentioning the director of the show, Emily Skinner, who had her no- own number at the end. She did I'll Be Seeing You, also a song from that year. Uh, so you had some wonderful, wonderful songs. Not great shows. Uh, he was, Mr. Siegel was explaining that most of these shows didn't run much more than 100 shows, which uh, in this day and age is uh, a flop. But you had some wonderful songs, as I said. I enjoyed it. I suggest, I suggest that if you possibly can, go down to Town Hall and get tickets for the two remaining shows. One thing I'd like to say also, it's my second week not being on the All That Chat Forum, and I'm still depressed, uh, but this is Marty Cooper saying once more, Stay on the Positive Side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony.
6: On the
3: boards.
0: A new play that's opening at 59 East 59th Street by Reverie Productions discusses a lot of the question of pop culture versus religion, or based on the title, perhaps it's asking if Pearl Jam is your god. Rearview mirror, we've got the writer and the director here with us today. How are you guys doing? Good, good, Michael. You guys want to introduce yourselves quickly? Yes, my name is Eric Winnick, and I'm the playwright. My name is Carl Forsman, and I'm the director. You know, you guys are longtime friends, I've, I've heard. This is the first time you've actually worked together.
7: Well, not quite. Eric directed me in the first play I was in in college, The Actor's Nightmare at Middlebury College in 19, and uh, we haven't worked <laughs> together since that.
1: This would be our first professional collaboration.
7: <laughs> so we went to Middlebury together and then just have kept tabs, and then when uh, he wrote Rearview Mirror, I saw the first reading of it, which I didn't direct, hired some other dude. And then uh, I was, uh, begged him to take me up to the O'Neill with him, and so we did it at the O'Neill two summers ago. He didn't have to beg that much.
1: <laughs> he, he had sort of established uh, something of a reputation for himself by that point. So, I was, I was only too happy to have him. <laughs> all right, so what is the show about here? The play is, is about the intersecting lives of three characters, um, all of whom are in various states of disenchantment with God and religion, in this case Judaism. The sort of journey these three characters take on their way to rock concert, uh, an outdoor rock concert that takes place in Brooklyn. The three characters, very briefly, are a a young screenwriter uh, who lives in Williamsburg, a young woman who is searching for a sense of self and identity, who starts out the play in Israel and then winds up getting um, involved with this young screenwriter and becoming part of his community in Williamsburg. And the third character is an Orthodox Jewish woman from Midwood who, for various reasons, um, has to step out of her own community and winds up also getting involved with this screenwriter. So it's, it's sort of a, a,
7: a, a tasty love triangle gone horribly awry. It's a, a modern retelling of the Bacchae about a dude who's sexually obsessed with mo- Orthodox women. That's what I like to say. <laughs> or, and it's that, too. <laughs> What's Pearl Jam's
1: connection into all this? Uh, very little, very little. Um, the, they they wrote a song called Rearview Mirror, and uh, I have checked up. Legally, it is okay to actually, you can't copyright a title. Um, so <laughs> I, I got the title off of Pearl Jam song, but it was also an incident at a Pearl Jam concert in 2000 that inspired um, part of the play. Um, there was an incident in Denmark at the Roskilde Festival um, outside of Copenhagen, in which nine people were, were trampled to death at this festival during the Pearl Jam section of the concert, and the band actually wound up getting blamed for having incited this, this incident. And, of course, they denied it vehemently. You know, they said they had nothing to do with it, and eventually they were cleared. But uh, the, the idea that a band, or in this case the singer Eddie Vedder, could have been responsible for this terrible tragedy was very interesting to me. And, of course, I had read the Bacchae, and I instantly sort of connected the two And I was interested in, you know, who were the people uh, in the Bacchae? We only learn about a few of them. But what if we knew more about the people who are on the mountain, or in this case, at the concert? How did they get there? Who are these people? What journey did they take? And all that sort of led me to write the play. This has got a kind of a different style. It's a very, uh, from my standpoint, d-
0: direct address almost kind of approach. And so, Carl, when, when you're doing that kind of direct address, what do you find your main tasks as a director are to bring out of the actors?
7: Well, strangely, I've directed a lot of plays that have direct address. One of the first really big things I did in New York was a Connor McPherson play called *The Good Thief* that was entirely direct address. And I've always been interested in the kind of narrative storytelling tradition of people just sit, sitting on stage and telling you a great tale. I mean, I think the Weir was one of the great theater events I've ever been to in my life, and this play totally taps into that tradition. It's the most ancient form of theater, like the Bacchae, which is people literally mouthing the narrative. And so there's this play has all these kind of amazing little threads because it takes place in a bunch of different realities simultaneously that there's the truth of them sitting in the space and talking to the audience and the truth of them hearing each other's stories for the first time and then the truth of the narrative that they're telling this past tense series of events that led to this incredible rock concert fiasco Uh, and so there are all these um, strains and versions of the truth that are all sort of colliding in space very interesting way of working and it requires you to ask a lot of questions in rehearsal about like well, we're telling this story in the past tense, but we're actually, you're finding it out for the first time now. You've known it forever. You knew it since the moment when it happened then, but it was a revelation in that moment. So there are all these timelines kind of intersecting all through rehearsal. It's a fascinating way to work.
0: The themes uh, deal a lot with pop culture versus religion, as I understand. This seems to have been heightened a lot in the past, you know, what, six years since a certain president has held office, and we've gotten these, like, very you know, steep divides in red states and blue states and, you know, the religious right. How much has some of that political atmosphere shaped the production?
1: The play predates the Bush presidency almost. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, <laughs> I, I actually started the play in, in uh, 2000. Yeah. so um, It's come
7: of age during the Bush presidency.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, is that if anything, the play is, I, I think it's universal, but, you know, it, it centers on Judaism. And I have been fascinated with religion in its extremes for a long time now, especially since I moved to New York, because having grown up as a reformed Jew, I grew up with the, you know, the lightest, least stringent form of of Judaism there is, you know, where you'd go to temple twice a year and you'd go to Hebrew school and you'd have confirmation and post-confirmation. And it's like you basically went through the motions um, as a Jew, and then you come to New York and you see that there's this whole other community of people who wear black hats and beards and they have tallaces and they wear yarmulkes all the time. And, you know, um, having learned a little bit more about this community, I've been absolutely fascinated by the fact that I am part of the same religion as these people. How can that be? Um, And I would take the train in Brooklyn and I'd see these women on the subway and they would have these, uh, you know, these ankle length skirts and they'd be reading from these pocket torahs very studiously. And I'd be like, and that made you sexually excited? That made me sexually excited. And, uh, no, th- it was basically like I, I just couldn't believe that, that we're all part of the same community. And so while I don't think of it as fundamentalism, um, there are aspects of Judaism that approach that. Where you two start working together on this was at the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights
7: Conference. I and mean, I'm curious, just on a like, little diversion for a moment, what is that conference all about? It's what? all about um, Miller High Life which is a beer they make in the United States, really, when it's cold, and you can get them for like two bucks a pop. Yeah. It, the O'Neill Festival is one of the America's foremost play development centers. When you go there, you really have a week to kind of freewheel a cast of really great actors over the play. And that's what we did, Is especially a play like this that's very um, simple staging-wise, you really have the opportunity to spend a ton of time really delving into tearing apart, ripping up, reshaping the text. And and so Eric and I had a chance to really kind of examine the whole play fresh with no pressure to produce it or figure out any solutions, but to ask a lot of questions.
0: Well, now Eric was telling me before you, sh- before you got here that you actually just kind of ended up being randomly assigned to his
1: play. Is that kind of Well, correct, I mean, the or? thing is they came to me and they said you know who do you who do you want to direct this, and you know, I had an extremely short list, which would maybe like two people basically <laughs> okay and um you know Carl sort of made it known that he wanted to direct the play, and given the fact that we had never really worked together professionally before, and you know, I was only too happy to have Carl come on board and um it did wind up being an incredible week. I was actually there for a month in residence at the o'neill, um, and so Rearview mirror was just one of the the weeks of that month, but I've never seen a play come as far in so little time as it did in that one week at the O'Neill in July two thousand five.
7: You know, it is. It's just like a concentrated theater beer celebration. Yeah, and there. by the way, I was I was a Coors Light guy.
11: <laughs>
7: <laughs> Carl, you've
0: got a lot of stuff on your plate going on. What what are a couple of the other things that you're doing as a director?
7: I run a theater called The Keen Company here in New York, and we have a show running right now called Tea and Sympathy, which I did not direct. Jonathan Silverstein directed that, but I'm producing that right now. It's running uh, off-Broadway at the Clermont Theater in New York. And I'm uh, the newly appointed artistic director of the Dorset Theater Festival, which is a summer theater in Vermont. It's been going for about 35 years. So in uh, May, I head up for my first summer running the Dorset Theater Festival where I'm starting off with a remount of my um, fall New York production of Theophilus North, an adaptation of Thornton Wilder's final novel. Then we're doing a season that includes three other plays, and then back in the fall for another year King Company. And Eric, I understand,
0: in your day job, you're with another company.
7: Yes, you might say that. Um, yeah, I, I, Theatrical behemoth.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, I've been the director of marketing at Playwrights Horizons since um, December 99.
7: You guys must have a little play going on now, right?
1: we got a little play going on right now. Yeah, shall I plug it? Okay, yeah, sure, should. why not. What do you do? Uh, Essential Self-Defense by Adam Rapp, currently running the Peter J. Sharp Theater through <laughs> April 15th. Is it good? It's
0: awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as marketing director for that, has that helped you out with some ideas for, you know, how you kind of get the word out about your production here?
7: We were Uh, thinking we'd do some internet radio. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's the the best way. You know, it's funny because in the various plays that I've done done over the years, sometimes an artistic director will look at you and say, I don't want you involved in that way at all. And part of me is like, well you know that's fine uh, i do have a little bit of experience but if you don't want me to do that fine you know and actually that was i did have that experience and um that play uh closed early and it was kind of a financial disaster not not that i had anything to do with it but um in this case colin young the artistic director and lighting designer for, for Reverie, was only too happy to sort of sit down and pick my brain and, and have me suggest some things. And, and I was more than happy to do it. So I developed the image, the postcard, um, you know, we talked through the marketing campaign, um, you know, where he was going to do what, and, and um, did a lot of research for lists, which I shared with 5090s, 59th. You know, I was, it, was, it was a pleasure to do. I mean, it was, it was, it's nice to market other people's shows. It was even more fun to sort of sit down and think, how would I sell my own show?
0: We should give a plug to Reverie. Who's your thing? What are some of the things that they've done, kind of in the past or coming up?
1: Well, Reverie actually just closed a show at Fifty Nineties Fifty Nine called Billboard. They now run an annual playwriting contest and um, reg- will now annually produce either as a full production or a workshop the winner of that contest. So last year they did um, two shows at Fifty Nineties Fifty Nine. This year they did one show in January. This has been a pet project of Collins now for a long time. So. Uh, you know, they're producing annually, they're, they're reading new plays, they'll do uh, a series of readings in, in May of the finalists, and uh, so they're, they're busy with one thing or another. All right, so the people can catch Rearview Mirror at 59 East 59th through April 22nd, correct? Yeah, March 31 to April 22. Call All Ticket right. Central, 212-279-4200. All right. <laughs> Rock and roll. Well, thanks for coming down on you guys' lunch break and joining us. Thanks, thanks Michael.
3: Top of the
11: Trades.
0: Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. You can always stop by BroadwayWorld.com for the latest in theater news and social networking. All right. Broadway's five-time Tony Award-winning hit musical, The Drowsy Chaperone, will welcome a trio of leading ladies in the coming months. Janine LaManna, who recently appeared as Nikki in the Broadway revival of Sweet Charity, will take over the role of Janet Vardegraff from the musical's Tony Award-winning star Sutton Foster from Tuesday, April 17th through Sunday, July 29th. Foster will play her final performance on Sunday, April 15th. Mara Davey, currently appearing as Maggie in the Broadway revival of A Chorus Line, will assume the role of Janet Van de on Tuesday, July 31st, after Janine finishes. Davey has also appeared in the encore staging of Of The Icing and starred as Peggy Sawyer in the U.S. and Japanese tours of 42nd Street. And television legend Joanne Worley, Laugh-In and the Merv Griffin Show, will assume the role of Mrs. Tottendale from fellow television star Georgia Engel on Tuesday, April 17th. Engel will play her final performance on Sunday, April 1st. The Manhattan Theatre Club has announced the lineup for Springboards, its newly renamed rehearsal reading series, which is formerly known as Six at Six. The annual series is dedicated to the support and development of innovative new work. Since 1999, several plays developed in the series have gone on to full productions at MTC. David Auburn's Proof, David lindsay Abair's Fuddy Mears, Joe Hortua's Between Us and Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa's Based on T- Totally True Story. I'm not going to redo that one. Other plays from the series that have been produced elsewhere in New York and around the country include Teresa Rebeck's The Scene, Julia Cho's Durango, Adam Rapp's Red Light Winner, yeah, you heard him last week, and Naomi Lazuka's Strike Slip find the whole lineup and link for their new series at a link at our website in our show notes for volume 108. The Drama League has announced the recipients of its three annual specialty awards to be presented at the 73rd Annual Drama League Awards Ceremony and Luncheon on Friday, May 11th. John Candor and Fred Ebb will receive the Distinguished Achievement in Musical Theater Award, albeit posthumously. Michael Mayer, the director of Spring Awakening, will be honored with the Julia Hansen Award for Excellence in Directing. And the not-for-profit charity organization Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS will receive the unique contribution to the Theater Award. And hey, two of the three of those have appeared on our show this first season. (laughs) Gotta see what we can do about getting John Candor and Fred Ebb on now. Anybody know any good mediums out there? (laughs) Okay. The show is also going to be hosted by Gary Beach, who uh, won the Tony for the producers as the director. And this turns into a big game of who's on first. He's now in Les Miserables. And he's actually also committed to be coming on to Broadway Bullet in the next couple weeks. Uh, We'll be seeing him very shortly. Yeah, well... I didn't care much about this one, and I'm guessing if you did, you watched it, but uh in case you didn't, NBC's reality casting series, Greece, you're the one that I want, finished with a bang Sunday night, crowning Max Crumb and Laura Osneys, the leads, Danny and Sandy in the upcoming Broadway revival of Greece. Mm-hmm. Crumb and Osneys. Yep. Give me a Crumb and Osne's too. Yeah. Yeah, those are pretty those are going to be fun names to watch on the marquee. <laughs> okay. I uh, I thought the whole thing was just ridiculous, but I'm sure that there's some of you that loved it, right? Let me know. Send me an email at info@broadwaybullet.com. All right, next week we'll be bringing you the biggest news headlines in theaters yet again on top of the trades. Curtain call. You know, we've got so many great people lined up for the coming weeks, and it's getting kind of scary. As I mentioned just a second ago, yep, Gary Beach has said he's coming in here. We're just lining up a time. Uh, Don't know if he's going to sing yet, but he might. Uh, Carrie Butler is coming in, and indeed, she said she might sing for us as well. That's going to be in the next couple weeks. We've also got uh, next week, we're going to hear from Celia Keenan-Bolger and Ryan Driscoll. Uh, From Summer 42, Uh, they're also in other things now, but uh, they're talking about the musical Summer 42 that the soundtrack just came out. We're also going to be hearing from Karen Ziemba very shortly. Uh, We just got a lot of great stuff coming up, so definitely stay tuned. Again, I want to give a big thanks to our interns who put in so much work and help with getting the show together, putting the show notes, getting the transcriptions up at BroadwayWorld.com. That's uh, Laura Costa. Hallie Parsonette and Victoria Myers do so much work around here and they are great help. We do have room uh, for things you can do to help. If you're interested, definitely give me a buzz at info at com. And I will be back with you next week. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for taking a ride on the Broadway Bullet.
10: I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live,
11: after all. If I
6: see one more Christmas carol
10: regionally,
11: that Dickens hey. has made enough money and up. Many minutes trying to sell myself, it's no
1: shame. Yeah. But we kept all the jokes that made people laugh from before. You know, the ones that didn't.
11: Because Rent is
3: about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about
6: something that shook. And center. It
8: sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, people are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, of people being different.
0: I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews... You know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution.